Hey, 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 hey! Hi, it's me, Nick. You're listening to Nick Flanagan Weekly, my podcast. Anyway, <laughs> I know it's been a while since I've put one out. It's probably been a couple weeks. Normally, I try to put out a few solo episodes in a week, or at least one. But this episode is an interview with uh, anti-racist researcher Devin Burkhart. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. It's taking me forever to edit the interviews I did. This is unfortunately from a few months ago. So we're mostly going to be talking about, you know, capital attacks and a lot of things that are still very relevant. But um, just to let you know, if you hear it, you'll be like, hmm, Nick sounds like he has more dogs at his house than usual. And that's because there were a bunch of dogs in the house at the time I was dog sitting. But now it's just me and good old Charlie, the littlest Italian greyhound you ever seen. His stomach's been gurgling today, but I think he's fine. He's 18 years old, he's a good guy, and he's very soft. I can't say that those are all true of Devin Burkhart. I don't think he's 18. I don't know if he's soft. I don't know if his tummy's gurgling, but he's probably a good guy. From what I, I gathered, he's a pretty good guy in our conversation. It was really enjoyable. And um, I, I, I hate to put something so heavy on you normally, but look, you can't ignore it. There is like a rise of anti-almost-everything sentiment. It's almost like a nihilistic thing going on right now, but there's a lot of racism. I wish we'd talked more about anti-Asian racism in this, but we really did focus on... Um, general white supremacist movements, a Holocaust denial for a time. But, um, you know, there's uh, uh, so many levels and layers to, especially in the West, um, racism and fascism. And online is where the kids get drawn in. You know, Prager U, which is not a racist uh, institution, but kind of is, and acts like it's a university, but it's just YouTube videos with like little cartoons. They're clearly trying to appeal to teenagers and they're trying to say all kinds of bullshit, like that Margaret Thatcher was cool. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, we talk about a lot of different characters, shady characters in this as well. So I would say if you're wondering who Nick Fuentes is, what the Groyper movement is, about Steven Crowder, Ben Shapiro, if you're wondering even what V-Dare is, uh, you can go to Rational Wiki or Patriot Takes on Twitter. Rational Wiki is a website, and Patriot Takes is a Twitter account. Um, and obviously Devin's uh, um, organization, which is uh, the Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights. If you go to their website, you will uh, probably get a lot of information about stuff like that. So um, I definitely want to recommend that you do that uh, just so you get a sense of what's going on, especially with this Groyper movement, which is this guy, Nick Fuentes, and this other dude who he mentions, Jaden something. And, and uh, they're very, they're like white nationalists Tween white, they're teenage, practically teenage white nationalists, um, you know, trying to sort of bring that like yuppie yacht rock look that these losers have been rocking for the last 10 years. 
or five years or whatever. So they're young and <laughs> they're on the rise and that's not good. Um, so yeah, check out Devin. He's on Twitter and you can uh, follow him there, Devin Burkhart. And uh, yes, you can go to uh, IR. I'm just trying to get to the website for this in front of my very eyes. Um, I'm so embarrassed. Honestly, I somehow wound up on his LinkedIn looking for the information right now. And uh, yeah, so he is at, he's dberghardt on Twitter um, and it's irehr.org. The Institute for Research and Education on Human's right, Human Rights is the website for his uh, institute that he's involved in. And thank you for listening. If you're listening to this because you're like, I hate racism. I've never heard this comedian, this podcast before. I'm a comedian. I'm a mess. I actually was really depressed in the, the period of time I was recording this and I didn't even realize it. So I'm dropping a few more ums, a few more ahs. My mind's a bit more scattered. Uh, Devin was incredibly generous with his time and incredibly uh, cogent and interesting. So I hope you enjoy the episode. And uh, here's my talk. If you could provide some uh, some background on yourself and just like how many how how you got into tracking the uh, sub mostly subterranean would you say world of uh, racists? I, I know you wrote a book about um, the pipeline uh, from uh, the musical perspective and 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 you know racially oriented or whatever, white nationalist bands and stuff, of which having been in punk and paid a lot of attention to metal and lots of other music, I know I know it's it's still going on, really, you know. Um, yeah, no, that's a great place to start. Um, I have been doing this for far too long than I care to admit. Um, mm. I got into it kind of inadvertently. I was, I think, 13 or 14 um, and had gone downtown where I grew up to go to a record store and found out that Robert Matthews, uh, who was then an Aryan Nations and National Alliance organizer, was hold holding a rally in downtown Spokane. So I just kind of went with friends and got involved with it. Little did I know that Robert Matthews would go on to form the order, uh, you know, a neo-Nazi terror group that robbed armored cars, mm -hmm. killed a talk show host and a Missouri state trooper. Uh, and set off this wave of white uh, supremacist terror, um, you know, for years. Um, for me, it was just an initial exposure to the stuff that was kind of swirling all around me as I was growing up. You know, I kind of came up in the, you know, the punk and alternative scenes at that time. And mm. Aryan Nation skinheads would come over to try and either recruit or beat up my friends. Um, and so I was, you know, experiencing all of that around me you know there was a bombing of a catholic priest and at a you know at another facility in court lane and so the kind of level of violence was very real to me and its impact on myself and the kind of subculture that i cared about it was really important so i that was always in the back of my mind then when i went off to university um i was studying political science and history and you know a group of activists from a group called the Coalition for Human Dignity came and gave a talk where I was going to school. Um, and I was amazed. They talked about the importance of 
gaining access to white supremacist groups and gaining information on them, both to report it out, to let people know what was going on, and then help communities build really effective barriers against bigotry. Uh, so I was hooked. I was like, oh, sign me up. So I got involved, became an intern. Um, you know, the first thing they did was send me off to militia meetings and Klan rallies mm-hmm. and power shows, you know, to both expose me to that world, which in a lot of ways helped dispel a lot of the myths I had, you know, and that had been built up by media and whatnot over the years. Uh, and also gave me a sense of the reality of what was going on behind the scenes. Um, so when my internship was over, I just wouldn't go away. I kind of kept showing up uh, and doing everything I could possibly do. And I think at some point they felt bad and decided to start paying me a little something. Um, and I have been doing it ever since. Um, that was in the early 90s. And I worked from 19, the early 1990s until 1997 with the coalition, um, moved out to Chicago uh, to work for an organization out there called the Center for New Community, kind of helped build that up from a small organization to do a national work around white supremacist, white nationalist activities, and then moved back here um, to kind of help revamp the stuff that the Institute has been doing for a long time. Uh, so that's kind of how I got involved. And, uh, you know, I'm really fortunate to work with some amazing people uh, who have been doing this stuff for forever. You know, uh, you know, we've had um, incredible mentors like C.T. Vivian, uh, you know, who was Dr. King's right hand man, uh, was a longtime uh, IREHR advisory board members and taught us the importance of doing this work, um, you know, and and that the importance was in the action and, and doing, not just thinking and sitting around and talking about it. And then Lenny Zeskin, who is a MacArthur Genius Grant winner who founded the Institute back in the 80s, um, he's been an incredible source of strength and knowledge for all of us. And so, you know, it's just been a, you know, a, a roller coaster watching white nationalism spend the last 30 years essentially moving from the margins to the mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, definitely something I've seen too. And just, um, to kind of give you the context of, of why I was immediately interested in, uh, having a discussion when I saw you on uh, Matt Bender's, uh, show, uh, most recently. And I think you guys were talking about the sort of developments in the so-called Groyper world. It's probably not even called Groypers anymore. There's probably some other thing, but Nick Fuentes and this group of people. But my interest uh, goes all the way back to the 90s as well when I was just a little kid. Uh, and, you know, there were, I think people who are a bit younger might not really understand in a weird way, it was also mainstream in, in a completely different manner in, in the 90s and 80s, you know, and I, I missed most of it, but people were fighting on the streets without protest. People were, uh, you know, the, the National Front in the UK was an influence for sure on Canadian stuff and probably in the US too, although there's a lot of other factors that go into US skinheads racist skinheads were really, they were much more of a thing, obviously, in the 90s and 80s, you know, and, and um, uh, so I was really interested in anti-racist action, and then 
years later, you know, after 9-11, I, I started really monitoring. Once like the um, conservative anger against Hollywood prompted blogs about it, like boycotthollywood.com, that opened up a pipeline uh, to me of um, everybody from Instapundit, I don't remember, Glenn Reynolds, I think was that guy's name, to Michelle Malkin, Pamela Geller, uh, this guy, Charles Johnson, whose website was responsible for so much hate mongering that was main, he helped mainstream that in a lot of ways. And, and then he sort of uh, slowly walked it back. Uh, but, but yeah, so ever since then, I've been paying a lot of attention to all of that and having been in punk bands uh, for years, uh, you know, since, since the 1990s, you know, obviously there was a lot of political, uh, it sounds like you were part of it too, like, uh, stuff going on. And when I went to Europe and I saw that weird kind of Gilman Street, uh, you know, sincere anti-racism stuff in 2008, which was like kind of during this period of cynicism in punk and in um, 80s hardcore worship that, you know, kind of mimicked the um, nihilism of that, uh, of that stuff that wasn't as kind of overtly movement oriented. You know, wasn't I'm not talking, like not pre Fugat. You know what I mean? Like the sort of Detroit. Um, yeah. So so I'm fascinated by by. Oh, and then in Europe, I saw Antifa in action. I saw like all of this. We played a big benefit with Propagandi in in Prague, and and um, and then seeing years later the sort of both the iteration in America of that, and also the complete misunderstanding of, of what that was by almost every corner I, I saw of it. Anyway, that's my background. And uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm finished telling you about that, but that's, that's why I was so interested in talking to you. And um, you know, if it, so, so that roller coaster ride in the early 2000s, like how has this stuff kind of shifted for you? Um, like it, how has the environment shifted, not for you, but for, what you're seeing, you know, and how important has the internet been to that process? Because my view has always been, actually just recently I realized, you know, people are talking about all this Russians influencing elections and stuff. What are they talking about? The, the, the world has been influencing the rest of the world since the internet started, like, especially far right stuff, I would say, you know? And yeah, so, so what have you, um, noticed in the evolution of white nationalism, nationalism in general, and, and far-right movements? Well, I think one of the things that's really important right now is that we're dealing with a problem that is orders of magnitude larger than when I started doing this work. Wow. Uh, you know, so I think that's one of the things, just the sheer size of it and its appearance in the mainstream is really important, right? The idea of having somebody like Stephen Miller sitting in the White House and drafting immigration policy was, you know, our worst nightmares 10, 15 years ago when dealing with the anti-immigrant movement. But here it is today, you know, our, you know, our worries about a kind of armed insurrection was, you know, was certainly important. And, you know, in the back of our minds during the militia movement of the 1990s before Oklahoma City, or, you know, even in the early 2000s, you know, all of those things were concerns to us, but we, you know, didn't anticipate seeing them storming the Capitol, you know, creating an insurrection at state capitals as well. Um, 
So I think that's one of the biggest changes, right? Just in terms of the sheer size and number of people involved. Um, the other thing is the variety of different ways in which this is presented. Um, you know, it is, it's kind of like going into a supermarket and trying to pick out a, you know, a tube of toothpaste or a loaf of bread. You know, you have 89 different choices and varieties to choose from now, um, as opposed to just three or four that might've been on the shelf before. Um, so that required us to be nimble in terms of paying attention to how this has morphed and transmogrified over the years and presents itself in different ways, the different constituency, right? You know, because that was the thing I learned really early on in the project to counter white power music, for instance, right? Is, is that, um, you know, they had been so successful at, a, you know, kind of quickly adapting to different musical genres to push the same messages, you know, and providing the kind of ideological ammunition to go out and commit actives of genocide, um, that it was, you know, it taught me from that early stage to pay attention to the way these things change and kind of morph and develop over time. So, you know, that I think is another thing that's developed. Um, you know, thirdly, I think it's also important, and this has always been part of our work at the Institute, um, is the transnational nature of it. You know, whether it's the, you know, the white power music influence coming in from the UK, um, or even if it's, you know, from Canadian sources, like very often. Yeah. Yeah. You know, whether it's Canadian sources like Rahoa and, you know, resistance records and their early formations, um, you know, those kind of things are also important. We pay attention to how this stuff flows transnationally. And we also try to work transnationally with partners all around the globe who are kind of tracking and monitoring uh, white nationalist activity and figuring out new and innovative ways we can kind of break that up and try to stop them doing what they're doing. And then I think the you nailed the, the really important other dynamic that's changed, and that's the internet, right? Since Don Black first put Stormfront up on the web in 1993, it's opened up a whole new world to white nationalists that they didn't have before. It's helped them kind of figure out new ways to mainstream their propaganda, figured out ways in which they can target new constituents um, and really help develop their movement, right? In different iterations. You know, in those early days, Don and, and folks like uh, David Duke were, you know, still trying to kind of resuscitate the old style white nationalism, keep it alive. You know, by the, you know, by the time you move into the 2000s, you've got folks like Richard Spencer and others who would eventually go on to form the, what was they called the alt-right kind of, you know, bring in misogyny into, you know, the kind of explicit white nationalism. And then folks like Nick Fuentes now have taken it to a whole nother level and amplified it in such a way that they've, you know, reached millions of folks uh, and now have a voice you know, with members of Congress. Um, so uh, how, how so do you, do you mean that have a voice with members of Congress? Look at, for instance, the most recent America First conference, uh, the America First Political Action Conference that Fuentes and his group held in Florida just about a month ago. Uh, you know, it drew former Representative Steve King of Iowa. You know, the very racist person. The guy who was essentially stripped of his committee assignments because he he told the New York Times, well, what's wrong with saying nationalist? Yeah. And then 
current sitting representative, Paul Gosar from Arizona, both were speakers at this event alongside Fuentes and Michelle Malkin. Um, and that's a huge step for a, an organization created by a young 20 something, uh, you know, to have a, a sitting congressperson willing to get their meeting of four or 500 people, um, you know, as well as be, to be able to reach such a massive audience uh, through, through things like Twitter and the other uh, social media sites they've been so successful on. And I, I think the problem is, is that, um, you know, especially on the right, it's been very interesting to watch the um, it is like the Democrats in some sense are the establishment, whether or not they're in power. And the Republicans are the people who are just like, uh, what do you got? We'll take it. Is it racist? We'll take it. <laughs> you know, can it get us a ba more of a base? We'll take it, you know? And, and uh, it's, it's been interesting seeing that because it gives that side, because they know how much it hurts uh, others, a sense of being countercultural. Or something yeah. and yet yeah i think you know i think that you know fuentes and the other groipers have really tapped into that sense of being countercultural, right? And being counter-establishment and they rely on that positioning to kind of bulwark their sense of importance uh, to others. Um, you know, it's what allowed them to get involved really early on in the so-called stop the steal efforts to help, you know, try to overturn the presidential election. Uh, and that gave them yet another platform um, to lots of people who wouldn't necessarily be exposed to somebody like Fuentes. Um, and, you know, it allowed him to, you know, again, come on Alex Jones's show, for instance, and talk to the conspiracy mongers there. It's allowed him to, you know, to find, you know, a receptive audience in somebody like Paul Gosar. It's, you know, it allows him to get constantly retweeted by Michelle Malkin to her 2 million plus followers. So, yeah, so they found that niche in playing to that um, and, you know, kind of, adopting some of the kind of countercultural tactics to try to strike at the, the heart of kind of, you know, neoliberal uh, uh, United mm. States. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's, and that's a very tricky thing to unravel because I think to sort of respond counterculturally, so to speak to that is tends to like, feel when I see it happening a lot of the time it feels a bit I hate to use the word corny but it doesn't seem like these are people who any resistance to their ideas any saying that the stuff they like is bad they they will not listen like you said they will we were talking about they will send you a million memes in a row and forget what you said by the time they sent you the 10th one because they're still in their mindset you know so so in terms of and at the same time what I'm wondering, and maybe you have an insight on this, is um, how, be, because this is such a more, for the lack of a better word, fun 
thing for these people, uh, for a young guy who doesn't know his place in the world. It, at this, it almost doesn't matter what their background is, it seems. Like they can be a, a, a African-American or a, a, an Asian guy. They're just like, I don't feel right. And I'm mad that these people on the left are saying this and making me feel bad. And this guy's making me feel good, you know? And, and um, you know, how do you sift between the people who will learn over time, you know, reg regret you and change and the people who are the burgeoning leaders of this and, or, or, or diehards, you know, is, or is there, a, a, you know, is there a reason to sift, do that sifting? Well, you know, that the kind of detached, pseudo-ironic uh, approach that the Groypers have used for so long is really hard to penetrate, you know, and really difficult to kind of wrap your head around because anything that is authentic or genuine, they will just mock incessantly and try to destroy it because uh, they develop their own sense of what's cool and what's not. Um, you know, really in terms of being able to target these folks, um, you know, we often think about this as kind of a conveyor belt where people step on it in different places. Um, you know, it could be that they could have seen a meme or they could have, you know, you know seen some of Nick's videos or any of the many other Groyper wannabes. Um, they could have started with Joe Rogan and thanks to YouTube's algorithm, get drawn farther and farther into the IDW world. And then it's more like a, a Nick Fuentes or Jaden McNeil or one of, or, you know, or Patrick Casey or some of those folks. Um, so part of our job we feel is trying to identify those entry points as to what gets people on that conveyor belt and get to them before they get sucked in and drawn deeper and deeper into this stuff. Because the harder it, it, it becomes much harder, the longer and the more deeply they're involved to try to extricate somebody from this world, right? In part because it becomes such a self-defining thing. You know, uh, the longer people get involved with white nationalist activity, the smaller their world actually becomes. Because nobody else wants to hang out with you, right? Nobody wants to listen to your crappy music. Nobody wants to hear about the Jews. Nobody wants to hear your complaints about, you know, this conspiracy or that. Uh, they're tired of it, right? Nobody so, wants to hear you defend Emily Eusis or call her hot or whatever. <laughs> none of that stuff is interesting to normal people, right? Yeah. Your, fr your, your older friends and your family members often will not want to have anything to do with you anymore. Um, you know, you may end up losing your job or, you know, losing, you know, other important relationships in your life. Uh, the only thing in your, in your life um, are these other white nationalists that you're interacting with. So your world becomes really small and it becomes harder and harder to detach from that because not only are you having to give up your sense of identity and belonging, but you're having to give up these, you know, pseudo familial ties, these relationships, these bonds that kind of help define you as a person. Um, so really our goal is always to try to identify those entry points where people might be getting sucked into this and try to get to the people um, before they get drawn in and before they get too far down. Um, you know, that's why we did the, 
the campaign against white power music back in the early 2000s. That's why we've done campaigns to kind of target um, some online spaces uh, in places where uh, white supremacists are recruiting to try to say, hey, you know, this is what's happening. Here's wh- who's recruiting you. Here's the crap that's going to come down on you if you let this stuff continue. So that's how we've kind of approached it over the years. And, and is one of your prime concerns that our, our world is heading to a place where those consequences are diminished, having views like that? I am. I am. I think that that is one thing, perhaps the most important thing, that Donald Trump's presidency taught white nationalists is that shame has no meaning in the current context. If you just move forward, there are no um, ramifications for your, you know, saying racist or outlandish things, right? It's all part of the act and there's no harm to it. Um, I think it's going to require a pretty concerted effort to make sure that there are consequences for doing that kind of stuff. Um, You know, and so uh, it is a challenge that we face in the post-Trump world is how to make shame matter again in terms of our work encountering this. It also means for us as anti-fascists and anti-racists that we've got to figure out different approaches rather than relying on individual shame and the kind of shaming approach to deal with this. So that whether that means deplatforming them or it means making sure that you're, um, you know, giving a full, more full-throated um, critique of them, or you are doing your best to try to push them back into the margins from the mainstream. There are a multitude of different things that we've got in front of us now that the genie has gotten out of the bottle and this stuff has moved so far into the mainstream. It's a different context altogether now. Yeah. And it's also something when we're talking about the mainstream, what's so interesting about that is we're not necessarily talking about television. You know, we're not talking about film. You know, we're barely talking about music, you know, like the mainstream is YouTube. The mainstream is on some level Twitter, although the algorithm kind of separates people in a different way there, I think, and kind of turns everything into a bit more of an echo chamber so that you can build your beliefs, you know, but uh, um so combating that, one of my favorite YouTube channels is called uh, Three, Three Arrows. I think that's the proper anti-fascist uh, thing. And he's a German guy who sort of takes down the sort of pipeline people. Um, and, and that was something else I was going to ask. Uh, and, and so I always like on YouTube when, when people like ContraPoints or, or, or Three Arrows, these different people uh, do uh, humorous well, and, and well-researched kind of takes on these people. Generally, it's hard to kind of convince a diehard that, that they're wrong, but, but I think at least you're not trying to get to the diehards. Like you're saying, you're trying to get the conveyor belt people. But, but um, I, did, I did lose my train of thought there about <laughs> why I brought up Three Arrows and, and, and YouTube and stuff. But, but it's, it's basically like, um, do you think this is, this is a bit of a, a, a two-part question. One would be, do you think it, it's right or wrong or necessary to deplatform the um, pipeline, so to speak? Uh, let's say it's, I mean, depending on the guest, you could say Joe Rogan, but I, I think probably vintage Dave Rubin report would be a, a better comparison, a better example, or uh, um, 
Steven Crowder, of course, is a great example. And uh, uh, is it better to kind of focus on people like that? Or, or do you think that the real threat is actually in the YouTube comments for their videos? Well, I think it's both, actually. I think both are incredibly important. You know, we're currently working on a book about the Proud Boys. And one of the things we did uh, was a study of the, the Facebook likes of individuals who joined the Proud Boys through Facebook. And we found a, a really interesting phenomenon uh, in that the biggest commonality that they shared in terms of their political radicalization, at least for those under 25, were the kind of IDW alt-right YouTube channels. Right? It's the thing that they most shared in common was a, a liking and an interest in you know, folks like Crowder and Ruben and Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson and Stefan Molyneux and all those folks, right? So that provided really an, one of those big entry points, that kind of radicalization path, which then led people to the Proud Boys. For interestingly enough, there was that kind of generational divide. And for people, particularly over 30, who got involved in the Proud Boys through Facebook, um, one of the, the most common thing that they shared politically uh, was their interest in the Tea Party. So seeing boots on the ground, kind of far right political activism, having a political impact had real um, drawing power for those individuals and helped kind of radicalize them and get them onto the conveyor belt, which they then ended up in a, you know, kind of racist reactionary street fighting group like the Proud Boys. So, um, so both of those things I think are important. Um, and whether it's, you know, demonetization or uh, deplatforming of those kind of sources, there has to be some level of accountability for those folks who are involved doing this kind of stuff. I totally agree on the uh, accountability aspect. The only reason I'm I think there's like an advantage to these to to uh, people being visible is that it's visible. I mean, I really do hope that a majority of people see like what Steven Crowder has like become over the years from this guy who sort of entered the algorithm as a guy who spoke at a Ben Shapiro speed at a speech to like college students, which was the first video and that was slid into my algorithm to where he is now, which is just maniacally, you know, uh, doing anything he thinks will bother the left, you know, and, and uh, increasingly more like racist and frankly odd, <laughs> you know, um, I think he's one of the saddest people I've ever seen operate, like one of the most visibly sad racists, you know, I think Gavin McInnes, if he had any awareness would be Self-awareness would be more visibly sad, but but Crowder, and again, as someone who's technically not Canadian, but you know, spent time in Canada and in the comedy scene, and I, I'm a comedian as well. I've heard stories about him, and I saw him lie about opening, like that people opened up for him in Montreal as a comedian. People who I know definitely didn't open up for him, and I said, "This is the kind of person. This is the kind of person that so many of these guys are like." They are so insecure that they will lie about things that aren't important, you know? And that's, I, I, I just wish that that kind of like baseline dishonesty was more important to people than like quote ideology.
unquote, which it seems like, you know. Well, I think that's the big thing, right? Is that because there is so much um, riding on this, right? That there is a massive financial incentive um, that, you know, grifters like Crowder are going to grift, right? And they are going to continue to be drawn farther down that sad, depressing, racist path because that right now is where the money's at. And there is this kind of inextricable force drawing them all further and further in that far rightist direction. It's not because they necessarily believe that stuff. It's because they know that that's where the audience is at. And they're actually now, while they help create it, are now trying to, you know, to, you know, to follow it. Um, you know, and catch up to somebody like Nick Fuentes or, you know, or uh, Jaden McNeil or Patrick Casey or somebody like that, um, because they have a financial incentive to do that stuff. And until that financial incentive is removed, they are going to continue to go to that lowest common denominator racism uh, and continue to get worse. And, you know, sad Steven Crowder may be a bit, but it's going to be a really, really sad bit as this goes on, right? That it's time to, you know, flip and, you know, suddenly go, you know, you know, become a former right winger and start marketing it as a, you know, himself as a, you know, as a left wing podcast. That happens. I think we'll know the tide has turned and, you know, the financial incentives are the other direction, but until then work to do. Yeah. And, 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 um, I mean, I think that that worries me too, even with something like the Proud Boys, is they're almost directionless. All they know is they want uh, to kind of get into it with the left. Like that's, I, and, and it, it almost, and I'm not trying to sound alarmist, but it almost makes you think of like the, the SA or something with the Nazi party. And I, I'm not calling them Nazis. I'm just, you know, I, I, although that's fine. I'm just saying like, it's, Right now, I'm just like freaking out in my head all the time because I'm like, okay, 100 years, historical parallels, you know, oh boy. And, and, and I just think that, that what I worry about is that as much as people wanted to equate Trump with like a full-on authoritarian dictator, he was still bound by quite a few laws, bound by all this stuff, and, that, and also kind of a buffoon who wanted very little except for to look good and to make money, you know, even within the, 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 the White House. And if there's someone who has a more broad, sinister aim, you know, these, these people can be real, could be even more dangerous. But, but, but um, do you view that about, about the Proud Boys? And, and then secondly, I, I know that you probably, you know, you probably have a lot going on right now, so I don't want to keep you too long, but like, uh, do you, do you, with the capital attacks, you know, how involved were some of these people that, that you've mentioned, uh, uh, you know, and, and how much were they coordinating as far as, as you know? Well, those are, those are great questions. And I've got as much time as you need. I'm, ah. I'm, um, so you said, so don't worry about that. Um, as to the question about the Proud Boys and the kind of role that they play, um, I think it is you know, an important note um, that the Proud Boys have played that role, both of adopting that kind of thing that binds together so much of the right these days, which is, you know, kind of owning the libs or, you know, 
attacking BLM or Antifa or any other, you know, so-called leftists or communists. Um, that is very much part of their identity and part of what drives them. Um, and so that's important. It's also important the fact that you actually have them in the battle for the streets, right? Engaging in kind of violence on the ground, trying to reclaim that um, is something we haven't seen for a long time, right? It is, you know, it is not a phenomenon we've had to experience and is very real and puts a lot of people's lives very much at risk. Um, so that's really important to pay attention to. And the fact that they've been able to do it in a way that kind of, you know, at least mockingly plays to a kind of multiracial dynamic inside organization that is so obviously grounded in kind of reactionary racism at minimum, if not kind of turning ex more explicitly white nationalist. Um, that's also a challenge that's going to we're going to have to deal with moving forward is how do we speak? about these organizations, you know, and a organization that promotes a lot of white nationalism that's led by a person of color. You know, what does that mean? Right? How do we you know, deal with those kind of changes and those kind of things? Yeah. I think that that's, you know, one of the things that when looking at the data yeah. around kind of who was involved in the capital insurrection and why that was important, um, you could, Groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, you know, the Proud Boys have now have more than 25 members who have been arrested for this. I think the Oath Keepers are second with uh, over a dozen, um, as well as lots of other organizations who helped, you know, kind of create the on-ramp for the insurrection. Whether that be Tea Party-esque groups like the... Um, uh, America, Women for America First, the group that held the rally the morning of that event. Uh, the first person to speak at the, the event actually was Amy Kramer, a founder of Tea Party Patriots, and one of the leaders in helping to promote the kind of breaking down the issue silos on the far right and kind of creating this larger mass phenomenon that we experienced for eight years during the Obama years that laid the groundwork for what became MAGA and the Make a Great America Great Again stuff, which fed all of the stuff which went into this. It also includes folks like Nick Fuentes and the Groypers, who helped lead from November on the Stop the Steal efforts um, and held rallies around the country to get people um, to try to overturn a free and fair election. Um, that helped provide the ideological ammunition for them to go out and do the kind of things that they did on, in the insurrection. And then looking at the data of who was involved in that insurrection, beyond the folks who were just, you know, obvious leadership in groups like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, one of the things that we find is that overall of those arrested, they tend to be, uh, they tend to be overwhelmingly white. They tend to be, uh, more likely to be employed than not. Uh, and when they are employed, they're more likely than not to be employed in white collar professions. You know, things like there are lawyers and architects and doctors and others who have been erect, arrested for participating in that insurrection. Um, and, you know, they are scattered all around from all around the country. But, you know, what some of that shows, in addition to them being slightly older than previous far rightists who have been arrested, 
and having more women involved this time around um, is that you have now moved from kind of subcultural politics to a mass political phenomenon. And that requires us thinking about this in different ways and responding to it in different avenues with different approaches, right? It doesn't mean that we abandon the subculture, subcultural fight, but it also means we've got to be playing and paying attention to this larger political terrain now that we've reached a mass phase. So that I think is also a big challenge for us moving forward and how we're going to have to address this stuff is that it, we've got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time and deal with both of these things simultaneously. And that for the left is going to be, I think, a big challenge for us moving forward. I was going to say, you know, and I, I think that um, this, this sort of center, center left mainstream um, is sort of presents one side, but that side tends to go to the, um, you know, if we punch a fascist, we're as bad as them. You know, I don't know what, uh, what, I don't know what, what, uh, Antifa, I think they, they're just as bad as, as this. And it's like, you know, having been in Germany, having been in Budapest in 2007 on a bus and seeing a guy with a, you know, good night left side shirt and another dude with a swastika um, medallion uh, there. And then our driver who was sort of involved in, there is no Antifa per se, just like, you know, it's like a guy is a, Part of the punk scene and you know is politically minded and he had his knife out <laughs> you know he was like i have my knife ready and it's like seeing that that anti-fascist action uh protest that we did was um surrounded by by police you know and and um and the people we were with were like armed and uh you know and, and uh it, it just seems like people have a bit of an ahistorical view of what this really is and how global it is, but also with America, how complicated that specific thing is, which is what worries me about this Nick Fuentes Groiper movement and, and generally the American talking heads because they have an element of glibness and mirth that you know your average European far right guy doesn't really possess you know they adopt it um i don't know if that was just amusing but sorry what crap out of me that share a thing in common with nick fuentes aside from living in chicago for a long time is that we're both debate nerds right so it that just bugs the crap out of me and the fact that he's been able to weaponize it in such a way that he's um can use that you know his speaking skills and his you know that humor and semi-detached sense of you know faux irony to you know attack so many different things in so many different ways um and always be able to shove up slough off like oh that was just a joke i didn't you know didn't really mean that i'm a white nationalist or oh you know that was just just a joke i was just poking fun at the holocaust i'm not really a holocaust denier or oh you know i was just poking fun at you know at black people it doesn't mean I'm a racist. Um, it's going to require us to figure out new ways to be able to push back against that, um, you know, and do so. I think also what's important in, as a way to push back to that is to be able to make 
anti-fascism, cool and, you know, relatable and accessible to more people. Right. And that means in, you know, on YouTube, on the various platforms, finding different ways and different voices that speak to these questions um, that can create our own pipelines and our own ability to draw people into what we're talking about um, to try to erase some of that ahistoricism and give people some sense about really what this is all about and, you know, the kind of struggles that people have had. That's why I always try when I'm talking about these kind of things to bring in, you know, the kind of folks that we've worked with over the years, folks like CT and, you know, and Lenny and all the other folks who have been battling this stuff for so long and have experienced so much um, that to kind of tie it back to our historical roots and the kind of valiant, uh, really important moves that have been the arc of, you know, the moral arc uh, towards justice in a way that is meaningful and real to people. Um, and it's not just about, you know, supermen and women, you know, and others stepping into this position, but it's everyday folks making a stand against racism and bigotry in their community that really makes a difference and telling more of those stories and engaging more with people around those things. And then of course, you know, always, making sure to make fun of them where we can. I think that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. So. They that, definitely, I, I'm certainly not saying they're cool or it's fun, even though I feel like I said both those things <laughs> in this podcast. Like I am here to, uh, I, I have a problem where like my Overton window is so far to one side. May, maybe it's similar to you where this was my, I was exposed to this stuff so early. I grew up and people in Canada were apartheid was, you know, a huge issue. And, and, uh, and we, we were, taught like you know lots and lots about world war ii and the holocaust you know being being um, you know my mother being jewish like it's uh and and then getting into punk stuff that was all very anti-racist from from the start you know like uh, it, and um I, I wonder if it's because we're almost 100 years out if people just are starting to kind of lose historical perspective on on stuff like that and and romanticize a bit more about about uh those the you know like like that i guess i mean coldly spout the same philosophies because they're so removed from the tragedy of it all you know you know there is some really disturbing data that i've seen over the last couple of years around holocaust remembrance week that's shown that the level of understanding about auschwitz amongst younger people has declined. I think around over 60% of, of young people can't identify what Auschwitz was or its importance. Um, you know, the kind of understanding and the detachment from the Holocaust and its, and its true meaning is certainly diminishing. And as we lose more survivors as they, as they slip away um, and as that expanded period between that period and now becomes longer. That's a real challenge. Yeah. Um, we've got to do a better job of thinking and reaching out to young people and helping them understand this stuff, not as an abstract, you know, science, you know, a social science project, but as something real that has real ramifications and, 
uh, impacted people's lives, you know, so dramatically in so many different ways. Yeah. And, and it's, it's funny because so many of the people that we've brought up, uh, I, and I, I view this about, you know, Ben Shapiro as well is, is a lot of their viewpoints when outside, outside of race, you know, really boil down to religious fundamentalism, you know, really boils down to that they think abortion is murder and that they think homosexuality is bad and that being trans is so confusing to them that it's even worse, you know? And, 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 uh, and I don't really understand why people don't see that more or glom onto it. Like, am I, am I accurate in this? Like, what is the level of sort of religion to atheism that you see in, in this? Like the level of I know that there's a lot of reverency. Faith Goldie, one of the racists from Canada, you know, is uh, sort of got really into talking about how beautiful European culture is and use, using that code. Uh, yeah, so so I don't know. That was that was something else I was just wondering about. I think it definitely plays a, a big role, right? Both in terms of uh, providing that justification uh, and also the kind of that fundamentalist view also helps kind of try to undermine reason and science and, you know, kind of a, a historical perspective. So it allows for a more ahistorical approach. It allows for an approach which denies other opinions and really is, you know, engaged at striking at the heart of the core of the Enlightenment, essentially. Um, you know, in the American context, the other thing that's really important, in addition to that kind of position, is the... Um, fetishization of uh, freedom, uh, you know, and the kind of role that, you know, the, that, you know, that this approach to freedom that says I get to do whatever the hell I want plays amongst folks, right? So whether it presents itself as kind of a political libertarianism um, or it is, you know, kind of expressed in the kind of anti-masker, uh, you know, anti-vaxxer sentiment of the day, um, at their core that really it's that, you know, it's that, you know, sense of I get to do what I want. Nobody gets to tell me anything else. Right. It, and so again, at that point, once somebody is that committed, the idea of reason and logic and persuasion become really difficult and it becomes harder when people say, well, it's, it's just my right. And that's it. Right. Um, it's like you need the Michael Corleone, uh, Godfather three, Sophia Coppola gets it at the <laughs> moment for them to turn their their ideas around. So, you know, so in the United States, for instance, during the pandemic, you know, we watched the rise of, you know, over 1100 of these COVID denial type groups, you know, which promoted anti-masker, premature reopening, uh, anti-vaxxer and kind of COVID denial sentiment on Facebook, right? We saw over 1,100 groups appear, 3.2 million members, right, promoting these kind of ideas. Uh, left unchecked and unchallenged by Facebook for months and months and months to create the kind of, uh, you know, space that incubated so many of the problems we're having today to now we've got somebody like Ammon Bundy, of the, you know, of armed standoff fame running around, you know, building up his own little army called the People's Rights Network, 
which now has over 25,000 members in 16 different states and is engaged in protests um, in front of, you know, in front of uh, legislators' homes, at um, vaccination sites, at hospitals, and is really, you know, making the fight against a pandemic even more challenging. So, you know, that's all coming from the, you know, their kind of freedom argument. In fact, their, their slogan is, Freedom is the cure. Um, <laughs> I guess for life, I don't yeah, know. Sure, freedom is the cure. Death is the cure, I guess. Death is freedom. <laughs> you know, there's different ways of... Pathology, which sits in there at some point. But yeah, they... Uh, yeah, so that's <laughs> another side of this whole equation that we're dealing with. That now, once again, you've got a movement that is bringing together so many disparate parts, right? You know, you've got militia types, white nationalist types, um, you know, with anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers all kind of under one umbrella now, all running around led by a guy who's already engaged in two armed standoffs where at least one person's been killed. Yeah, you're like, no wonder you have all the time in the world. It's like, there's just so much to announce about all this shit. Nothing going on over here. It's Everything's fine. There's just so many things I've chanced upon in my horror, you know, masochistic uh, exploration of all this stuff. Stuff like on YouTube, clips from Chandler's List, strangely cherry picked, and then with a bunch of racist stuff underneath it, you know, and anything historical always has like a lot of people posting on it. And you mentioned these Facebook groups and stuff, and that, that comes down to another thing is you know, one of the most, uh, he's semi-famous in, in, in sort of, you know, fascist circles, I guess, this guy Weave, you know, and he's a person who was a, uh, well, maybe you can say more about this guy, but he was, uh, he's a great example of the internet savvy that some of these people have, and it's a very, like, caveman-like one, which is basically like, we know how to flood things, you know, and, and so I just wonder in terms of, if, if there's less of them at first, it makes it seem like there's more, get the ideas out there more, and then you have the actual physical bodies and minds that espouses after the fake ones have spread basically propaganda. That I think is a, is a great observation. I think that's a lot of what happened, you know, in that so-called alt-right period, we even, a lot of the other figures really did try to flood, you know, with, you know, a sh- the volume of material and you know you can any- say shitload. I don't know if you were going to say shitload. You can say it. I have every listener here knows me. Yeah, definitely a shitload. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, and just try to flood the zone with both volume of, of posts as well as um, you know lots of fake accounts and ways to uh, you know in essence fake it till you make it right. Use that approach to create the illusion that they had a larger movement than they did, um, you know, which helped drive a lot of the activity pre-Charlottesville and create the momentum leading up to that. And, you know, going back to that, they've used the same kind of approach now that they've again used all of the platforms to grow their their supporters uh, and to, you know, develop this constant churn of individuals and topics and techniques. Um, you know, if you just take somebody like Fuentes, right, he's appeared 
on virtually every platform, right? Early and is an early adopter of it, right? So it's everything from, you know, he started on YouTube, then DLive, then uh, Trevo, and then, uh, you know, he's got his own platform now, but then he also showed up on TikTok for a while and used the time there to, you know, which was like a, a day, uh, but, it, you know, to gain and publicity for himself until he got kicked off and then on to, you know, on to, you know, Discord and yeah. even more recently, you know, a three hour stint on Clubhouse, right? So he figured out, you know, he, he's all newest way to you know find a location to you know either well to do two things one is to promote his stuff and he's also he also knows that controversy controversy is key to his brand right so he needs you know to he needs that kind of martyrdom to get kicked off of a platform he needs that a, a constant attention to continue to grow and expand his base um you know, ironically, the one place he hasn't been kicked off of is Twitter, right? He's got over 120,000 followers on Twitter, and, you know, uh, and also his tweets get retweeted and, you know, pushed out by a network now, which is in the millions, you know, Malcolm alone has over 2 million followers. So they have this built-in network that does exactly what you say in terms of the amplification of their message to seem it is big that that it is bigger and more prevalent than it might actually be if you kind of peeled back that veneer. Uh, yeah, that's a good thing to be paying attention to. Definitely. I mean, uh, I, I, yeah, uh, it's because I know comedians. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. all they do. <laughs> it's all it's all artists do is make that's you know. Um, but uh, as I'm forced to stop because I could, I honestly could talk about this forever and ever. Is uh, Oh, you know. Before we stop, I wanted to bring up one thing because you mentioned Weave. One of the things that Weave did for the movement that was really important was introduce them to Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he kind of helped, you know, popularize that and, and made a lot of money doing that. Right. And so that has become for somebody like Fuentes, a really important revenue stream. So, for instance, if you wanted to subscribe to his horrible website right now, the only way you can do it is by Bitcoin. And um, thanks to uh, the donation uh, of 13 Bitcoin uh, from a French programmer who later committed suicide, you know, Nick Fuentes is now sitting on the equivalent of nearly half a million dollars. Thanks yeah. one donation, right? And it was because you had this, you know, early on in those early alt-right days, pre-Charlottesville, um, you know, the, the Bitcoin idea is so prevalent on the far right grifter scene. Um, so to now where it's having a real consequence and, you know, folks like Fuentes and Casey and VDare and others now are being fueled by uh, this new, the rise in Bitcoin prices. Well, we're going to have trouble if, if these guys uh, ever meet up with uh, David Irving, then you're going to have uh, the old historian guy. Remember David Irving? Oh, do I remember? I could tell you some stories about David Irving. He's, uh, you know, oh my God. David Irving story that I have to tell you. Yes, I know I'd you love to hear a David Irving story. By the way, if you're listening, you don't know who David Irving is or any of the, who these people are. Hopefully I've explained it at the beginning of the episode. But uh, 
David Irving is this British guy who I guess was a semi-respected historian until he started uh, uh, denying that Auschwitz could have uh, had gas chambers, basically. And then slowly, slowly got to the point where now he just openly refused to Jews as like the eternal enemy. And yeah. so, uh, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that David Irving used to like to do after his fall from grace was come to the United States and do a speaking tour um, which involved um, speaking to a lot of neo-Nazi groups and other anti-Semites all over the country. These events were often hush-hush, behind-the-scenes, kind of, you know, invite-only events, because in part this was after David Irving lost his libel lawsuit against Deborah, Deborah Lipstadt, um, you know, a famous author, um, and as a result of that, Irving was not only found to be an anti-Semite and a racist, but he was ordered to pay um, Deborah Lipstadt's legal fees, which were in the millions of dollars. So during this period, back in, the, I forget exactly when it was, in the 90s, or Irving was here in the United States doing a tour um, while ducking, uh, while ducking being served for having to pay these legal fees. So one time when he was coming to the Pacific Northwest, um, we happened to find out where this Irving event was going to be. Um, even though it was a really exclusive event, you had to go through two different checkpoints to find out where it was. You know, you would be given a checkpoint, you'd go there, they'd then direct you to another checkpoint, they'd then assure you were okay, then they'd tell you the location of the event. But it was really hush-hush, right? So, so we happened to, you know, know the location of the event. And so it's a small event, which has a variety of racists and anti-Semites gathered to hear Irving do his talk about how Hitler wasn't really such a bad guy or whatever it was during that day. And he's just getting into it in the middle. Of, you know, he's reaching it, the crescendo of his speech. And in the middle of it, someone who we helped get into the room stands up, walks up to the podium and goes, are you David Irving? And he says, well, yes. Well, yes, of course I am. He goes. Oh, good. You've been served. Hands him, hands him the documents that, you know, that he <laughs> served him for those millions of dollars that he owed Deborah Lipstadt and walked out of the meeting. Oh, that's amazing. You were, you know, so happy about, uh, you know, in hindsight that, that we could help in some small part play, a, you know, a role in helping to, you know, shed a light on some of that stuff. So, yeah, those, that's one of my many, many David Irving stories that I can share with you. I mean, I think that that really is is funny because it's kind of the idea that maybe punching a Nazi is maybe not as an, as effective as getting uh, them broke, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, uh, and that's what's so interesting with that Bitcoin thing and, and that, that suicide story about the French, uh, I haven't looked into that, but there's got to be so much to that. There's so many really troubled people who are supporting this stuff, you know, and uh, um, I guess I would, the, a way that seems like it would be a good way to close because I, I, I'm not sure if the people listening to my podcast, which is normally me uh, complaining about ADHD or, you know, uh, other comedians or, you know, people in grocery stores, uh, <laughs> all will know these names, not all. Of so, so I was maybe wondering if you could kind of give like a, uh, a list of the, the, a few people that you know, they should be maybe aware of. You can include Nick Fuentes because like I said, I we, we haven't really given like a ton of the 
the the the lead on him, so to speak, here. So, if you can think of a, a, a few, and I know you've mentioned Patrick Casey, and and so you, you're welcome to kind of give a quick uh, kind of rundown of 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 the players in this movement, so they can hopefully lead, people can leave knowing knowing who not to uh, subscribe to on YouTube. Well, I doubt anyone who's following your channel is going <laughs> to YouTube. But um, there are a lot of individuals in a variety of contexts that we're paying attention to. So among the groups that we're watching closely are groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, uh, America First, uh, uh, Patriot Front, um, what used to be the American Identity Movement. Uh, you can find a list of these on our website at IREHR.org. And then some of those figures which have a presence on YouTube and other places that you should pay attention to um, are folks like Nick Fuentes, the leader of what he now calls America First, or the so-called Groypers, um, folks like Patrick Casey, who used to lead the American identity movement, uh, and until recently was working closely with Nick Fuentes, folks like Jaden McNeil, who brings a kind of religious conservatism uh, to these folks, uh, as well as a lot of homophobia into the mix. Um, Folks like uh, uh, Greer, Stephen Greer, I think it is. Um, you know, he's another one of these Groyper figures. Um, but then also pay attention to, uh, you know, folks like the Proud Boys, uh, you know, folks like um, Ethan Nordine and Joe Biggs and some of those other characters. Um, you may not have to pay attention to those folks too long. They may have, uh, you know, a prison sentence here to keep them busy for a while. Because a uh, lot of them are being uh, are implicated in the capital stuff. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, literally right now we are tracking hundreds and hundreds of groups, uh, you know, with uh, hundreds of thousands of members overall, all around the United States, um, some of which have, uh, you know, have uh, reach into Canada. Oh, yeah, uh, I'm sure. And so, you know, we're doing our best to try to keep an eye on all of them. Uh, you can follow that, all that stuff and kind of the latest machinations of the stuff we're paying attention to on our website. Uh, we've got a big report coming out here probably in a week or two on kind of the, the rising anti-immigrant movement again and the kind of the role that eugenics and race science have played in, you know, in the formation of that and the funding of that. Um, so that should be pretty interesting to, to your listeners. Um, yeah. And we continue to, you know, to continue to move on this. And if people are interested, if they want to get involved, you know, please, you know, hit me up on, on Twitter or on, you know, via email. Uh, Slide into get, the DMS. I yeah. slid into the DMS and look where we are now. You know, um, you know, we're, you know, we're constantly getting folks to volunteer and kind of training them in what we do so they can do it um, because there's far too much activity going on for any one group or any, you know, constellation of groups to keep track of right now. And uh, the share information and ideas and do our own, you know, share, you know, building up of our own resources, the better able we'll be able to do this because, you know, Coming up out of the punk scene, I very much have that kind of DIY spirit. Um, you know, we're a small organization trying to challenge this stuff in every way that we can. You know, and so the more people involved, the better. And you know, it helps make uh, 
you know, it helps make this, all this stuff possible is the kind of stuff that yeah. people are out there talking about it and, and being concerned about it as this stuff feeds in the darkness. So yeah, kind of trying to match each person, you know, match numbers is, is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, I got to walk these dogs. I don't. <laughs> so unfortunately I got to go, but this has been really wonderful. And uh, thanks so much. I, if you ever want to come back or talk about something, um, you're welcome to. I, That'd be awesome. Yeah, because I think there's like so much to kind of get into with this subject. And uh, yeah, again, like, uh, you know, consider me voluntary. My email is somewhere in your box. So, you know, forward it to the proper people and you know, awesome. love to help. Yeah. Cool. Looking forward to it. Okay, Devin. Well, great to meet you, man. And uh, yeah. I, we may have some friends in common. Who knows? Yeah, no doubt. That, that, yeah. Very interesting. Because yeah, yeah. I have both musician and comedian friends too. So yeah, we should. Talk. Uh, great to meet you. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to that talk with uh, Devin. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to uh, follow more, find out more, we're going to provide uh, links in the episode description to a lot of the things uh, that we talked about. His twitter account and um website and that type of thing and if you like nick flanagan weekly you can support us on ko-fi just throw us a little tip ko-fi.com slash nick flanagan it can be a one-time thing it's not like patreon or anything but we also have patreon and however i would say throw us a little buck on ko-fi it's it's fun it's worth it and i love you and you can follow me on Twitter at Nick Flanagan. No, <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at the Flans or Nick Flan Weekly, Instagram Nick Flanagan, Instagram Nick Flanagan Weekly. And if you could rate, subscribe, review this, that would really help. We love that. Um, get out there, get involved, especially with anti-racist. Uh, situations and things don't be afraid to stand up to people um don't be afraid to sneak around and spy on them because they deserve it and uh you know that is all stuff uh devin's organization is a great way to start it follow him on devin berghart on no sorry d berghart i'm keeping this that's the crazy thing i'm gonna keep my giggles i'm gonna keep these Verbal typos, and I'm just going to keep going. D. Berghart on Twitter. Find him. Find yourself. Find me. Find a new planet. We'll move there. Okay, XO. See you soon. Thanks. Nick. Oh, God. Flanagan.